Well, if you have a Bible, please open up to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we're going to start in verse 13 today. And uh, this really wraps up a series that we've been in now for about two months, right? We have been looking at one of the most profound messages, uh, not only in the ministry of Jesus, but certainly one of the most profound messages in the Bible, and one of the most powerful messages ever spoken into the world as we know it. So powerful is the Sermon on the Mount, the Manifesto of Christ, that literally atheists, agnostics, Buddhists, Muslims, the list goes on and on and on of people who appreciate the message that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago here on a hillside to a number of Galileans trying to understand what is the nature of the kingdom. And because of that, in some ways, I, I, I think that dilutes some of what's in the Sermon on the Mount, because when you really start to look at all of the words that are there, when you study the full body of that message, it is not something that humans should go, oh man, that is so rich, that is so deep, that is so good, that is so awesome. No, there's some stuff in there, the boy, very inspirational. But there's some other things in there that frankly just pulverize us and confront us and demand things of us that frankly we don't want to do. Because the standard's so high, because literally it's a message from outside of this world imposed into this environment. And so it requires, it states, it explains, it demands, it challenges many, many things. I mean, think about how it even opens up. It opens up with how to be happy. And we go, yes, we want to know how to be happy. And the ways we look for happiness are all sorts of things. We look for sex to make us happy, money to make us happy, job to make us happy, family to make us happy, people to make us happy, government to make us happy, all of these different things we look for. And then Jesus says, well, here's happiness. To be poor in spirit. That's happiness. To be a mourner. To be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To be pure in heart. Right? To be peacemaking. To be truly merciful to people. That's going to be happiness. And above all else, man, if you're persecuted, there's happiness. So he says, what you want to do is you want to be salt. And you want to be light. And you want your righteousness to exceed the righteousness of even the most ardent legalists of the day. So he says, if your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and reconcile with him. In fact, he says, don't even hate him in your heart because to hate him is to murder him. You don't want to do that. And he says, watch your eyes because even if you lust in your heart, you've done it. If you're discontent toward your spouse and you wish you had somebody else, you've done it. And then he levels on divorce and oaths and turning the other cheek. And loving our enemies. And then he talks about how we're supposed to give from the heart. And how we're supposed to pray in secret. And how we're supposed to fast only for God an audience of one. And then he goes on to say, oh, and let me tell you about where we store up our treasures. And what we trust. Do we trust God or do we trust money to be our savior? And he says, hey man, don't worry about tomorrow. Just seek first the kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. And we go, okay, that's enough, that's enough. He goes, no, no, I'm not done, I'm not done. He says, then I need to help you understand that it's sinful to judge your brother in sinful ways. In fact, to judge him is to violate the whole Bible, all of it. It's to miss the very essence of the gospel. So he says, don't judge 
lest you be judged. He says, in fact, to help you out, verse 12 of chapter 7, just do to others what you wish they would do to you. Right there, that's where the sermon officially stops. And when you really soak all of that in, like I said, it's confronting. It really does demand something of our lives. And from that, different people look at the sermon in different ways. Some people are going to look with just kind of basic disinterest. Yep, I heard it. That was interesting. I'm moving on. That is not how you get ahead. You are not getting ahead by being poor in spirit. You're not getting ahead by being a peacemaker. You're not getting ahead by not judging people. And so they just disregard it. Others are going to look and go, wow, that was really, really profound. Some of those statements were really beautiful. Man, to love your neighbors yourself, to not judge, uh, lest you be judged. Those are powerful. But there's other ones in there that they go, nah, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't want that one so much. Another group will look at the Sermon on the Mount and they'll be a little bit critical of everybody else around them, how nobody else is doing it, but they think they are. And so the church should do this, more Christians should do that. And again, kind of violating the ultimate idea of judgment. But then there's some that are going to say, yes, I get this. It resonates. It's the kingdom. It's the good news of Jesus. I want to make this a part of my life. See, my prayer is that that is the heart of Redemption Church. That we don't just go through the manifesto and at the end we go, wow, that was a great series. There was a lot of props. He had a salt lick up there one time. That was awesome. You know, and they had these boards out of his eyes and, you know, that was it. But that we'll look at this message and say, this is the message that I want to be a part of my life. This is the thing I want to do. And then from that, I want you to understand then that these values are then not values that save us. Rather, these are the values of the saved. This whole Sermon on the Mount isn't going to save you. If you did it all perfectly, it's not going to save you. What the Sermon on the Mount is, again, are the values of those saved. Those with a walk with Jesus. Those who've entered by the gate who is Christ. Only when that is true, only when Jesus is Lord and Savior of our life, is this message going to make real sense. And so as Jesus ends there in verse 12, the actual body of the sermon where he says, hey, here's the bottom line, the toughest one of all. Aside from not judging, you got to love them. Do what you wish they would do to you. That is, that's pinnacle stuff. He leaves that and he goes to the issue that matters for all of us in this room. He says, you have a decision to make. You can't just indifferently go past this message. You, you have to actually recognize that something must be decided on. And so Jesus is going to start off by saying, you know what, ultimately what you have to do is you have to choose a door. You're going to have to choose one of two doors. Now, doors are powerful things in our lives, right? Doors, when we exit them into the real world, boy, it opens up all sorts of possibilities. We talk about that. I just need an open door. We just need to know somebody that can kick that door open for this friend of ours to get a job. Doors are powerful When our kids, when they go off to kindergarten for the first time, they leave the door and we realize, man, they're going into an unknown world and they go off to college. That's a scary one. But it's a big world out those doors. You go into doors and that's a world too. our homes, 
our places of business, our churches, inside doors. There's a whole ecosystem related to doors. And so Jesus knows what he's getting at as he's going to talk about the fact that we have to choose a door. He realizes there's a, there's a whole world beyond one of two doors. And this is what I love about Jesus. You know, we love options. We want options. Jesus rolls like In-N-Out Burger. He doesn't give options, all right? Jesus makes choices for you and whittles them down to you have two choices, all right? That burger or that burger. That's it. See, we would love to say, well, you know, I I want a lot of different doors. I, I want many different options. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works. There's really just two fundamental options, two basic doors. But that's been pretty consistent to Jesus. He says, hey, there's one of two hearts. And there's one of two places we put our security, God or money. There's one of two treasures, earth or heaven. So it's no surprise that he says there's one of two doors. And with this, he says in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. Based on everything I've said, he says, what I want to tell you right now is enter by the narrow gate. Now you look at the narrow gate, not impressive. Nobody gets excited about a narrow door. Nobody. I mean, if if I said, fire, exit, which one are you going for? Oh, yeah, baby. Right? That's where you're going. Nobody's be like, fire, I got to get down there and go through. Nobody's doing it. If you go to a movie and there's two exits and one looks like this and one looks like that, which line are you going to? Big door. If I said, I'll meet you in the other room, just go through one of those doors and I'll be in there in a few minutes. You're not going to roll in and be like, um... Yeah, what the heck, all right, you know. I mean, you're not doing it. Right? You're not. Why? Because the big door is dignified. The big door is powerful. The big door is easy. The big door is familiar. The big door is comfortable. The big door is spacious, and what always you think when you see a big door is attached to a big door is a bigger room. There's always something bigger behind a big door. The little door, that is kind of silly, unless you're a hobbit, then it works great. But it's embarrassing, it's for children. Oddly, children always pick little doors over big doors. That's just a little tidbit. But, but we look at little doors, we go, That's, that leads to a utility closet where there are spiders and rats and mice. I don't want the little door. Little doors lead to little rooms, little closets. Not useful to me, right? And so when we have a decision between two doors, we will almost always pick this and it makes sense right because it's fit to us it's customized for our needs 
And yet Jesus is so revolutionary and so out of the box, like everything else he said that is backwards from what we would anticipate, he also looks at this and he says, all right, you guys, you need to pick a door. But here's the thing, man, pick the narrow one. Pick the small one. I'm just letting you know, that's the one with something cool behind it. This one, he says, not so much. In fact, he says, the gate is wide that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. They're many. And like I said, in this room, we would all go through that one. I mean, just again, if I yelled fire and these were the only two exits, we would all shoot for that one first. If it was clogged, we'd go to that one. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Here's the problem in life. Millions, billions of people are going to shoot for this one. And there's a big room. It's just not a good room. It's a hot room. It's a dark room. It's not a good room. But that's where they're going to go. Literally by the billions. But see, what they're doing is they come to the big door. As they're all thinking the same thing about the big door. This is my Savior. See, when we think in terms of saviors, there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, avowed, claiming saviors in our world. Literally. Tens of thousands. In fact, you see Paul dealing with in the book of Acts, this, uh, in the book of Acts uh, chapter 17, verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens... His spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. See, for us, we think about idols as that like little golden head from Indiana Jones that he rolls the sandbag on and takes off with. And we go, it's just gold, man. And you didn't even measure well, dude, so that's why you're in trouble. But see, idols aren't just gold or wood or whatever. Idols are anything that we trust to save us. If we believe a job's going to save us, that's an idol. If we believe a person is going to save us, that's an idol. If we believe uh, money's going to save us, that's an idol. If we believe government's going to save us, we are cute. And that's an idol. Right? All of those things are idols. Idols are no different today than they were then. And they're all just big door promises. I promise if you just date that person, your life's going to get better. You're going to be happier. You're going to be fulfilled. Your skin's going to clear up. Your brain's going to get big. It's going to be awesome. And then you get stupid and foolish and you break out because they stress you out. Did I hear an amen on that? I don't know. Okay. Um, But those are all idols. And so Paul sees all these idols in Athens. And yet today, when I look around, I go, man, I see nothing but idols too. Lots of big doors. In fact, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Don't be covetous, for a covetous person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. See, I I can't even help but reflect on on what Jesus talked about earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And what does the word mammon mean? That in which we trust. That where we place our hope. That which we rely on to redeem us. And when I think about that and I think about this message, Jesus is warning, there's a lot of things 
big, wide open doors that promise to do that. And yet, what does Jesus say? He says they lead to destruction. Destruction. You go, no, 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 they're just practical. They're just functional. I I know that trusting my money, I'm not thinking that's going to get me to heaven. No. But it wants to keep you from heaven. Because there's an enemy that leverages all the idols. Because he doesn't want you to be with Jesus. He doesn't want you to worship God. He doesn't want you to bring glory to Christ's name. He doesn't want that. So he's going to keep throwing everything at you. All sorts of big doors. To lead to destruction. And so as Jesus preaches this whole message. And then he brings it down. Now it's time for decision. He says, man, choose the narrow door. Why? Because the wide one leads to destruction. And many go that route. Many. He says, oh. But then there is the gate that is narrow. And that gate leads to life. Now again, is this popular? No. Does the world look and go, wow, that's a really impressive gate. That's a really fancy door. That Wow, that should be like at the Hilton. That should be a five-star door. No, no, nobody's doing that. But see, Jesus knows, right? He knows that if heaven is walled off, if the kingdom is walled off, there's only one door that matters. It's the door that everybody goes, that's silly, that's ridiculous, that is like, uh, you know, just bizarre religion. Jesus says, yeah, that's my door. That's my door. More important, it's not just that it's his door. It's him. John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Here's the great thing about the gospel. The gospel isn't just a message. The gospel isn't just a creed. It's not just an idea. It's not just a statement in a book. The gospel is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. And see, here's why I think this is so huge, so important. This is the thing I have to stress. If there's nothing else that catches today, I hope this catches. If we just want heaven, you've missed it. The gospel isn't heaven. That door is not like, hey, sweet, I want this door because it gets me to heaven. What it is is I want this door because the door is Jesus. And where this leads me to is Jesus. And who I spend eternity with is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. If I say, I want to be saved so I go to heaven, that's okay, but that's not really the gospel. The gospel is, I want Jesus. That's what all of this drives toward. It's what it's about. I don't get excited about a vacation because I get a break from work. I get excited about a vacation because I get to hang out with my wife and kids a lot more. That's the way I should understand eternity, heaven, the gospel, all of that. I want him. That's how we're to own this and see this. And here's what's great about this door. Um, it's, it's free. It's free. And, and, and another thing about this is it's simple. 
It's not a complicated thing at all. I mean, it's a little door. It has little directions. It's really, really simple. In fact, Jesus has already said it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey, man, you want to be a part of this? It's really easy. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. It's simple and free. Now, in one sense, you look and go, but it's kind of restrictive. Well, sure, because it's small. It's, it's remarkably small, but it's just the right size if you approach it properly for even the chief of sinners. Even the darkest, even the most repugnant, even the most awful individual you can think of, Jesus says, that's not too much for my door. See, that's the gospel because Jesus took the cross. He took my sin. And man, I am like a daddy grand poobah of sin. I got enough, you know. And he says, I took it. And you can come through my door. See, that's what we're talking about in the gospel. But it takes posture. It takes repentance. It takes humility. It takes Jesus. I just want you. I just want to know you. I just want to experience you. I just want to be with you. I just want to be near you. And if we kneel and we duck, we can fit. That's the narrow door. But the competition is the wide one. And what's interesting about the relationship to these two is while this is simple and this is free, something you have to understand about the narrow door that is so critical is that that doesn't mean it is easy or it costs me nothing. Just because it's free and simple doesn't mean it's easy and cost me nothing. See, because again, here's what happens in our life, right? Uh, we gather up all kinds of baggage. All kinds of stuff. Some is sinful baggage, right? Some is not. Some is just stuff. Some is just things we like or whatever. We get it all together. And then we come to our gates. And we have to figure it out. And what our temptation is, is to say, well, I want, I want that one. That one looks awesome, but I want my stuff. Whatever that is. I don't want to let go of my life just yet. So I, I, I'll, I'll say Jesus, but then I'll kind of play by my rules, and I'll hope that's narrow enough. But it's still wide door. Wide door works great for all of my baggage. Matter of fact, it will customize. If I have more baggage... Gates just gonna get bigger. But see, Jesus, when he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, part of that is he's saying, you know what? Dump your baggage. Stop clawing to this world as though these things are going to make you happy, or these things are going to save you, or you need these things in life, because you don't. Again, it's free. It's simple, but it's not easy. In fact, it will cost you everything. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, 
says, and he says to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, hey man, I want you to come through. And I'm like, well, sweet, can I check baggage first? He's like, no, man, this isn't the airlines. Right? He's, he's worse than the airlines, man. It's not just like kick my shoes. I got to kick everything. Right? I basically have to take my baggage and say, you know what? Hell can have it. That was rough. Right? And then, like I said, then we're ready. See, this is the gospel of Jesus. He says, I came to save you. I came to save you from yourself. I came to save you from your baggage. I came to save you from this world. I want you to choose the right door. But it means you surrender. And yet it's a happy surrender. Why? Because you get Jesus. Right? You get eternity with Him. You get Him as the all-surpassing treasure, the pearl of great price, the one you would want more than anything anyway. You're not losing anything by giving up this door. You're gaining everything by choosing this door. Everything. You're letting go of your bitterness and anger and frustration, lust for this world to satisfy. Man, He says, drop it all. Drop it all. Sadly, he says, those who figure this out, those who find the small door, he says, they are few. They're few. And the reasons are obvious. Um, This is is just easier. This has all my stuff. I love my, my stuff. I cleave to my stuff. And like I said, that stuff can be items, can be people, can be attitudes. He says, no. There's nothing there. Choose the narrow gate. Choose the narrow way of things. Because one of two doors starts one of two journeys. Right? Each one of these is basically a trailhead. This is the trailhead of the true gospel. This is every other artificial gospel the world pumps out. It doesn't matter what it is. And it puts us on a trail. puts us on a road. A road that we all have to walk, right? That's what Jesus talks about. Now, the world will tell us, you know what? There are many roads. There are many ways to God, right? This one right here, it opens up. Man, it goes a million ways, a billion ways, six billion ways. There may be six billion doors like this, or seven billion. Who knows? Billions and billions and billions. And all these ways. But Jesus says, no, there's only two roads. There's one attached to that door, there's one attached to that door. That's it. And so they're fundamentally two basic trail markers. The first, Jesus says, is a highway to hell. Highway to hell. You know, right? So, it's a highway to hell, Jesus says. He says, the way is easy that leads to destruction. The way that's tethered to the big door, right? That's life. 
And it's strange where people will say in, in life, I mean, I've heard this a lot over the course of, of uh, you know, my years on this planet. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And as long as you believe something, you're good to go. And I'm like, well, what if I believe in a chicken boy Adonis with, like, bubblegum hair? That doesn't help anybody, you know? Like, and I sincerely do. That, that's not, that's not going to help. It matters what we believe, not just that we are committed to what we believe. And that's what Jesus is saying. Your way is just your way. And that's the problem of the human race. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all have gone like sheep astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Every one of us. Right? Apart from the gospel, apart from Jesus, apart from this, we all just do our thing. And we all have our theme song, I did it my way, and then we die. Right? And then our theme song is, burn in with the devil, right? Because we said, my way. Jesus says, well, your way is a bad way. You go, but my way was a moral way. My way was a good way. My way was a humanitarian way. My way was a generous way. My way was a philanthropic way. My way was a pacifist way. My way was a recycling way. Whatever it is. Saving the world one plastic bottle at a time. And he says, still your way. Not only still your way, but Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way to death. See, we, we have this broken theology that says um, bad people go to hell and good people go to heaven. And Jesus says, uh, all bad people. Well, I'm really good. He goes, yep, you were the best of the really bad ones. That's awesome. You know? You get an A in F category. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's it. Because we are all broken. We all go our own way. It's simply rebellion to choose this, whatever this is. Right? So he knows it ends in death. It leads to death. It's going to be broken. So he says, don't, don't, don't get on that trailhead. Don't enter that door. Don't go down that way. No matter what it is. No matter how good. No matter how noble. No matter how kind. No matter how benevolent. It's still a way that leads to death. He says, no, you have to go through this exclusive gate, totally free, but cost you letting go of everything. So you, you, you get on that, and, and, and that way there, um, he says, I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. He says, if anything, this one's easy. This is a highway. This is multi-lane, baby. You have options. This little tiny door has a very difficult way attached to it. I mean, literally, it's going to be difficult. Isn't that what he says? Right? The way is hard that leads to life. I mean, this is no shock. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Go back to everything we've learned. What does God call somebody to do that lives for Christ? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's pretty hard. Do unto others as you wish they would do to you. That's hard. Do not judge lest you be judged. That's hard. 
And then you get into all the other things, man. Keep your mind pure, your eyes pure, your money, uh, not being a trustworthy sense of security for life, but letting God be that, uh, beating down your own sinful inclinations, seeking to bring glory to God with your obedience. That is a very hard road. And this is what I love about Jesus. He is a horrible salesman. He's like, hey, I got two options. Really big, nice and wide, totally comfortable. You could drive a semi down it. Or this, ow. You know, like, thanks. He's like, well, yeah, I just want you to be clear. This is my manifesto. This is going to change the world, but it has to change your life. All right? So that's the difference. He says, it's a hard way, but here's the great thing. You're not just walking the Jesus way. You're walking with Jesus who is the way. Right? Isn't that what he says? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Man, this is what's great. Jesus doesn't say, hey, it's going to be really hard. Buck up, little camper. He says, no, the gospel, man, it's free, but it requires you to completely surrender. And then you get on this very difficult road, but I am that road, just as I am that door, because the gospel is me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so that's what he is hitting home. And you know what's great about this? When you get the gospel and you know Jesus is the gate and you know Jesus is the way and you're walking the way in Jesus, not in your morality, not in your own sense of fortitude, but you're every day going, Jesus, I need you, want you, seek you. I'm desperate for you. I am not satisfied unless I am really doing this with you. The great thing is then all of those burdens of the narrow way aren't that burdensome. They're only a burden when we do it in our own strength. Sometimes we resent it when we do it in our own strength. But boy, if we're really walking it in Christ, for Christ is the way and Christ is the door, boy, it is all different. 1 John 5, 3, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commands, and his commandments are not burdensome. Right? We go, man, no, my Christianity is a burden. Well, my encouragement is, seek Jesus more. Don't just be obedient. Seek Jesus more. Rely on him more. Be passionate for him more. Because he is the source. He is the motive. He is the conclusion. He is the reward of it all. And so it's all about Jesus. So we walk his road. As we do this, Jesus says there's going to be risks. And you have to know the risks. The first is this. There's going to be man-eating sheep, which is freaky. Right? But there are. What's he say? He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This is the problem. And here's the kicker for us. This is what I'm saying to us as a church, as a Christian community. Uh, when it comes to wolves, here's the bummer. More often than not, because they're in sheep's clothing, wolves are really, really nice. Wolves are really sensitive, really caring, really interested in you. Wolves, and I don't mean this if you're in sales, but wolves are like salesmen, right? Um, what I mean is hopefully you have no used car salesmen. Okay, so anyway, um, right? But I mean, again, they're like, hey, good to see you. you. You're here for the first time. And hey, buddy, hey, pal, you know, all that stuff, right? I mean, like nobody that ever wants to take you is mean to you, right? I mean, a con man is what? 
flattering, nice, kind, safe, right? To suck you in. And it's the same with wolves. That's why he says they're in sheep's clothing. That means, boy, you, you have to really be discerning. And to be loyal to that discernment. Because again, it's going to be really easy to go, boy, I don't know if what they're saying is right, but I really like them. They're really great, so I'm, I'm going to lower my guard. That's, that's exactly what the enemy wants. And this is why Jesus warns, I'm telling you, man, there's a little door and a narrow way, and it's going to be hard because there's going to be wolves. Like, well, wait, I thought it was tough enough just being a narrow, difficult way. He goes, I know, and there's wolves, right? There's more. And I would say there's four kinds of wolves that we have to be aware of. The first is the obvious. We'll call, call them cult wolves. Just cult wolves. Where it's not about the Christ of the Bible. It's not about the gospel of the Bible. It's not about the church of the Bible. It's not about the revelation of the Bible. It's about other And we, in our own Christian life, face cult wolves. And we have to be discerning, especially we go, ah, but they're so awesome. But it's still a cult wolf. Doesn't mean those people are bad people or mean people in and of themselves. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean we have to be aware. And to that, we say, keep out. You also have corrosive wolves. Corrosive wolves are the ones that seek division, they seek to gossip, they seek to slander, they seek to undermine other people. Right? They're those types. And in the church we face those kinds of wolves. Sometimes we become those wolves. It's amazing how often, in 20 years of doing ministry, I meet people who left a church to go find another church, really because they had some problem with one or two people in the church who were saying things about them behind their back that they got wind of. Like how tragic, because that's wolf behavior. You also have con wolves, right? Con wolves are like anytime you turn on televangelists on TV, bam. Con wolf. You can get a magic hanky for $10,000 given in the name of Jesus, baptized in the Jordan to heal you of your cancer. Yep. I wish I was kidding. That's a con wolf. But then you also have confused wolves. And confused wolves are the ones that, that they just don't know better. Maybe they don't know their Bible well, or maybe they don't know doctrine well, or, you know, they're, they're very well-meaning, they're just trying to help, they, they care about people, and so they just give advice, not God advice, just what they consider to be good advice or worldly advice. And they're very sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. And so Jesus says you have to be aware of the wolves. In fact, in Acts 20, Paul is warning the elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He says, I know after my departure that fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He says, therefore, be alert. He says, man, be, be alert. Be ready. Be prepared. And you go, well, how do I do that? Well, Jesus tells us. He says in verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Two things. First, something to all of us. Um, If we're going to be good at recognizing fruit and knowing sheep from wolves and knowing our trees, we need to know truth. In fact, in part, it's even why we're doing the doctrine series. It's like, man, uh, we live increasingly in a world where the world is defining doctrine. And we go, oh, okay, that's what you say. We're great students of the world. We're poor students of the Bible sometimes. And so it's like, man, let's make sure we're anchored. Let's really make sure we know what God says, why God says it, why it matters, how it counts for eternity. When we know truth, we can know wolves. If we don't know truth, we can't know wolves. And so we need to be aware. But the other thing is you have to understand something about them. First of all, you have to understand that sometimes fruit doesn't come quickly, it comes slowly. So you have to sometimes just kind of always be aware. All right? Always be aware and realize it's little formulas like this. Sometimes they'll have right words, but they'll have a wrong life. And that could be wolfish. I'm not, when I say wolves, I'm not trying to say they're bad people always. I don't mean it that way. I mean in relationship to our faith. Other times you'll see they have right words, but, uh, or they'll have wrong words, but a right life. And that's still wolfish. What you're looking for is the right words and the right life. That's safe. Now, when I say right life, I don't mean perfect. In fact, if anything, I mean they're even transparent about their imperfection. But they acknowledge it as sin and they want to be right before God. You watch things like their family. How do they handle their spouse? How do they handle their kids? Right? Do they leverage gospel and grace a lot? Do they leverage law a lot? What do they leverage? How do they respond to hardship? How do they respond to success? Does it all seem to go to their head or do they seem to get so unbelievably defeated that you go, man, how, how do they even have a sense of God in their life? They're so defeated. See, these are ways we can do that. And again, I'm staying away from specifics because I, I want to stay kind of in the generality principles because I, I think it's important for us to begin to develop things that help us to notice and to be aware. And so Jesus says, boy, you've got to realize this is one of the risks, the man-eating sheep. There's another issue as well though and this one's going to get a little closer to home jesus warns of the sheer free sheep a sheer free sheep is a goat and so in verse 21 he says not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day many will say to me lord lord did we not prophesy in your name did we not cast out demons in your name did we not do many works in your name and he will declare to them I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So this one, I I find myself taking more thoughtful um, notice of. Right? Here's these people. One day, they're dead. Right? We're on the other side of all of the journey, all of the doors. They stand there and go, Lord, Lord, look what we did in your name. We preached the word in your name. We pushed back darkness in your name. We did great and mighty signs in your name. And what Jesus is going to say is basically, that's great, you did it in my name, but you did not do it for me. You did it for you, you did it for others, you did it out of compulsion, whatever it was, but you didn't do it for me. More than that, he says, you're lawless. Which means you might have done things in my name, but you did not obey me. Right? You just... Went through motions. And he says, I never knew you. Never. 
doesn't mean, well, they, they were known by God, it was all good, and then something happened. He says, no, and, and never knew you. Uh, you said everything in my name, everything, but you went through this door the whole time. The whole time. He says, had you gone through that door, it would have been totally different. You'd say, Lord, Lord, look what we did for your fame. Lord, Lord, look what we did for your glory. Lord, Lord, look what we did for your goodness. Lord, Lord, look what we did as worship. That's, that's that door. But this door is, uh, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name, but we benefited from it. And that's kind of the motive. He says, man, I just never knew you. People will say, but, but, but we know Jesus. And Jesus will say, yeah, but I, but, I, but I don't know you. I mean, that is a very potent thing that Jesus says here. And so, again, just rack it up. What Jesus has said so far. He says there's a wide door and an easy way and that leads to destruction. There's wolves and there's bad trees and they're cut down and thrown into the fire. And then there's goats where he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says in Matthew uh, 25, 41, you go into the eternal flames prepared for the devil and his angels. None of that sounds like our fun, happy, loving Jesus, does it? I've said this many times. When people go, God in the Old Testament was so mean, but Jesus is so loving. No, Jesus is the architect and preacher of hell. Jesus preaches hell more than anybody. Almost exclusively in the Bible, Jesus preaches hell. And here's the deal about hell. Fire is hot, dark is scary, eternal is long, and you don't want to go there. So, right? There's your door. There's your door. And that's the way Jesus begins to wrap this all up. And we're just going to move here where he says, you want to anchor a holy destiny. Anchor a holy destiny. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Now, now when he says this, I want you to understand um, what's going to break down here is the difference between rewards and and eternal punishment. And and I say this really quickly because, again, if you're saved and you get there and Jesus says, I knew you, right? Then any judgment that's going to happen in our lives is not punishment. It's not condemnation. We're not going to suffer in the sense of some kind of like hellish thing. It's like, you know, maybe I was a very obedient believer. Maybe I wasn't much of an obedient believer. Uh, but again, I'm saved. And so what judgment awaits me is re- related to reward, not punishment in a hell sort of way. Because again, that door that Jesus wrote. But for those that said, no, I take this door in that big way, punishment, hell. That's what Jesus is saying. It all comes down to that. So what is the difference between that one and that one? Again, the foundation, it's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Who is the rock that you build on in Matthew 7, 24? Jesus. Right? You enter into salvation through Jesus. You walk in your life with Jesus. You build on the foundation. Who is Jesus? Who is it all about? Jesus can't stress it enough. In fact, you see a scene of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. He says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation for everybody who is saved. He is the foundation. 
says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work was, uh, each one has done. Right? So we're getting back to Jesus says, hey man, when you build, build on the rock, which is me. Enter through the door, which is me. Walk the way, which is me. Because there's going to come a day where then life is tested. And it's a scene like this. Let's bring up this picture here. It's like you got these three little stick dudes and they're all built on the foundation of Christ. And they all live their life and they all go, here's what I've done for God. And Jesus says, well, great. Well, one day it's going to be put to a test. You're all saved. You're all Christians. Nobody's going to lose any salvation. But what you did in this life will be put to a test. Let's go ahead and test it. Whoom! Got to love fire. All right. So it's put to the test. That's what it says. This isn't hell, right? This isn't hell. This is just testing the works done on the foundation of Christ. And then what happens at the end of that? Bring it up. Uh, dude way over on the end. He's kind of sad covering himself up. He has no clothes. They burned off too. Um, and then different things. But they're all on the foundation of Christ. Which means nobody's being, quote, punished in a hell sort of way. It means simply things done in this life are tested by God in the end to go, what was for Christ and what was not. This is why Paul continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And he says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as only as through fire. Again, that means all of them saved. Why? Because they're all built on the foundation of Christ. They all went through the door of Christ. They all walk in the way he was Christ. So when Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the man who hears me and does what I says... That guy's on the rock. We understand, okay, well then, that person's future is simply related to reward. Which, it's odd, because then even the reward we have, we give it all back to Christ. We cast our crowns, right? We say, it was all of you. It was all of your grace. Right, that's what we do. But then, there is the other side of the equation, verse 26. It says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now you look at this and you go, well, wait a minute. Is that, is that person, uh, or is what Jesus is saying here that what you do gets you saved? I mean, if you don't do this, you go to hell. So in other words, your works save you? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Not at all. You are saved by grace through faith alone. You are not saved by your works. But what Jesus is saying is, truly saved people who truly enter this door and walk his way, those people bear fruit. Because it's not just a creed, it's Jesus who lives in us. His spirit who lives in us and guides us bears fruit. This is why it says in James, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? It says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says, hey, go in peace, be warm, be filled... Uh, without giving them a thing that they need, what good is that? He says, also faith by itself, it does, if it does not have works, is dead. So I'm a believer, but I don't have any fruit. I believe in Jesus, but I don't have any works. Jesus say, I, I think you're in this door still. Because this door always produces fruit. Now, I can't say how much fruit, what kind of fruit. I'm not here to judge that. I, nobody can. But it produces fruit. The difference between these two is a confession or a conversion.
The difference is a confession or a conversion. Here's a confession. A confession acknowledges the gospel, attends church, but faith is secondary. They have right words, they fear hell, they want heaven, and they know of God. Those can be kind of traits of a confession. A conversion relies on gospel, tends church. Faith is central, right actions, fears God, wants God, is known by God. And the difference between the two is whether one is on sand or one is on rock. Right? Words are easy. Lots of people go through this one saying, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. But I have all my bags. I have my priorities. And he says, no, it's that one. It's that one. That's conversion. That changes the person. In fact, Jesus says it this way. He says, there is this day that the rain is going to fall and the floods are going to come and the winds are going to blow and they're going to beat. And they're going to beat on a house founded on rock and they're going to beat on a house founded on the sand. And people look at this and go, oh, well, those are the storms of life. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about. He says, no, no, there's a day coming. You entered through one of two gates. You walked one of two ways. Eventually, you built your life on rock or sand. And one day, you stand before the great judge. And he says, now there is a storm. And the storm is his holiness. It's his judgment. It's his sense of perfection measured against those things. And so it says in Ezekiel 13, therefore, says the Lord God, I will make a storm wind break out in my wrath. And there shall be a deluge of rain and my anger and great hailstones and wrath to make it to a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. I know you're like, whoa, what happened to the funny joke Sermon on the Mount stuff? No, this is, this is blatantly, boldly, and eternally serious. Right? I mean, there's nothing more important than this right here. And there's a day when that storm hits and the house on the rock did not fall, it says, because it was founded on the rock. It was founded on Christ. But the one founded on sand, it says, great was its fall. In fact, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 25 says, when the tempest passed, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever this is how jesus ends the manifesto so when we go yeah i want to do that i want to be that i want to understand that jesus says, it's awesome but here's what it's really all about here's what counts which door have you chosen which way are you walking which foundation you build on let's pray jesus i thank you that you did not come to the world to be a salesman you did not come and say hey here's a really easy faith with a big huge door and it's just a cakewalk after that and you want to just give us everything we desire you say no it's a little door and it's a hard way and 
boy, there's going to be a lot of temptations. But in the end, there's you. And during the journey, there is you. And in all things, there is you. We love you and praise you in your name. Amen.